If you're someone who's passionate about transforming education, which you are if you're listening to this podcast, you should check out the Charles Koch Foundation. The Charles Koch Foundation supports social entrepreneurs and organizations that are embracing innovation to build better solutions for today's learners. Visit ckf.org to learn more. Welcome back, everybody. It's your time to add up on the Ed Up Experience podcast, where we make education your business. Dr. Joe Salustio here with you again and again. I will tell you guys that, um, you know, we, we try to make it easy for you as we get to like 400 episodes, you know, 420, 430 uh, to find what you want on the Ed Up Experience website. We have some starter episodes out there. If you don't know where to start, there's a little section on the website that tells you where to start. It can be overwhelming now with 400, you'd think like, where the, what the heck do I listen to? Some of our old episodes are absolutely horrible. So I suggest you go with something a little bit newer um, as I've brought on some guest co-hosts, talked with great guests. I'm a little bit better than I was. If you go back and listen, it's funny. We have, we have someone that went back and listened to the episode that Elvin and I did first, our first ever episode. It's so bad, it's not even funny. I'm not even sure you could listen to it. You probably will turn it off if you try. But you know what? If you get like to 300, 350, 400, it just gets better and better and better. And now it's it's great because our guests that we have on have heard about the podcast before, know that it's a complete train wreck, and still agree to come on, which says a lot about the conversation that we're going to have on this podcast, which is great, right? Because this is organic. It's about our current and future states of what higher education is and can be. And I work in it every single day at Lindenwood University now in my new gig. And so I'm always thinking about these things and how students are affected by the decisions that we make. I'm not just a talking head up here. I'm doing the real work along with my guests. And so that's why our conversations are so, uh, so critical. And so I've got somebody with you today or with you, somebody with me today. See, that's how good I am on the microphone. I've got somebody with me today uh, who's really doing some innovative work uh, in the space I think we're going to have a great conversation. Uh, he specifically requested not to receive the applause, so I'm going to introduce him here to something a little bit more creative. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest today, wait for it, wait for it. He's the CEO of College 101. He's a senior lecturer at Harvard Business School, and his name is Stieg Leshley. Oh, uh, 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 yeah. Hey, here is Stieg. What's happening? Oh, my God. I'm shocked. You like the audio? What was that? Is that what? Uh, uh, yeah that's your intro man i don't know what that is but it's better than the clapping thank you yeah. Joe. Good oh yeah that's that's because <laughs> you're that that's that's to describe the work that you're doing um talk Good. about college 101 so level set for us what is it what, what what do you do how do you do it college 101 let's see the short version advocacy um we do data um and we argue that's what we do. And then in separate ways, also less visibly publicly, we're incubating organizations mainly around accreditation. So big picture, uh, Joe, for the audience, uh, we're a public policy advocacy organization, let's say. All right. So public policy advocacy organization around accreditation. Sounds complicated. Accreditation is complicated. Accreditation is, is it uh, empire? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I have a feeling you're going to tell me what you think. So go. So it's not specifically about accreditation. It turns out to get super focused on it, but it's 
it's really interested in the big question, which is how do we fix college in America? Um, as we start to sort through that question, we the first sort of maybe non-obvious turn that we take at College 101 is that there is no reform of higher ed of any consequence or at all complete unless it's anchored on and centered on new entry. That's for the Joe. It says, look, there are a couple thousand existing colleges out there that have been around a long time. And there's lots to say about how to help them, regulate them, fund them differently. Um, but at the end of that, the first position we take is that we have to get new actors in. So we get very interested in new teams to start nonprofit college so we can get real innovation. Because I think the likelihood that a large number of American colleges, two and four years, are going to turn themselves inside out in permanent ways to get a lot better, the odds of that are low. Whereas if very clever educators and social entrepreneurs can start nonprofit colleges that are carefully regulated, that um, are willing to sign up um, to reach for new models and do it for less money and get better outcomes, um, then I get interested. Then I think we can get real innovation in. So that's really the core idea, Joe. And then comes this sort of immensely practical, boring, technical question of accreditation, because it turns out hiding in plain sight are US accreditors and they, they're powerful. So we can talk about accreditors, um, but the punchline is the obvious one, Joe, which is that we need accreditors that um, are interested in pathways into the sector where they can invite in, scrutinize, and uh, power up nonprofit colleges, hold them accountable. So we get really interested in that. There's another dimension to accreditor land, let's say, which is the degree to which they do or don't hold existing colleges accountable, which we can also talk about. <laughs> so that's the big, um, that's the storyline of College 101. So let, yeah, I mean, this is an interesting conversation because, you know, think about this, right? Uh, pick your big retail company, online ordering company, you could pick who it is, it's a Walmart or Amazon, whatever. If I want to, I could start my own mm. online shopping website tomorrow and start competing. Now I'll get crushed, but I can try and I can compete. And there's, there's not a ton of barrier to entry besides unbelievable market share that I would have to try to shave off. Higher ed isn't that easy, right? You can't just decide, hey, I'm going to start a nonprofit college and immediately start to compete because you can't get Title IV if you don't get the right accreditation. You have to go through an incubation period. You have to hit these regulations by state, by federally. And so the barriers to entry for university are vast, are they not? 100%. I'll just double down on it a little bit. You know? so, um, the, so let's say you and I wanted to go start a college. I've been down this road in you know, prior work. Um, we need to get through two gates. One, we have to get a governor and a state political uh, body to agree that we're a college under state law. That's hard, but doable. Um, that's step number one. That makes you formally a college. It allows you to grant a master's, an associate's or a bachelor's degree. It uh, would allow you to call yourself a provost or head of campus security, Joe, whatever it is your preferred title would all be. All for right? cash, though. At that all, point. all for cash, right, exactly. So in, an, in that sense, you and I could start at college um, and we get degrees, but here's the problem. Until you're a credit, 
credited. Um, you can't accept uh, payments from students that originate in federal financial aid, nor can you qualify secondarily for most forms of direct aid out of state budgets to college. Yikes. So there it is. That's the challenge. And so as a result, you know, we could start a really expensive college um, for which upper middle class and wealthy families could pay on their own. Um, but that's a tiny uh, share of the U.S. college space, something like a third, I would estimate, of uh, families in America can pay for college without uh, public support. So you basically can't get at the money. And so this is where the accreditors come in. Um, and they are, you know, there are a handful of really dominant ones. There are these seven regional accreditors. They're technically formerly regional accreditors, but there are seven private organizations. Your readership should understand this. They're literally private organizations. There are seven of them that control 90 or oversee 95% of college goers in America. <laughs> um, and um, there you have it. Um, and they, um, they set out to sort of monitor these colleges and we can have a fierce debate about whether they do that in any meaningful way or not. Um, but separately, they are also the, the door through which you would have to go if you want a kind of reliable form of accreditation. And as a practical matter, that's almost impossible. And you could drive yourself crazy to count the number of new colleges that have been started in the last 20 years, and you'd struggle to um, you'd struggle to count more than you can fit on two hands. Yeah, I mean, you have to you have to enter the space in an all cash way because you're not going to get access to Title IV if you don't have the re the accreditation. Now you can go regional accreditation. There's also national accreditors, but even if no matter which path you go, it does take a long time mm -hmm. to get accreditation. And if you have an all cash college, Steve, if you and I go off and we start that college, not only are we going to have the barrier to entry for Title IV, but we're going to have this, th th there is a, uh, I don't know, a, a reputational piece where if you're not accredited, then you must not be quality. And what's, what's accreditation do for quality? And this, there is that debate. Because then if you're, you could start a nonprofit college and go in all cash and you're going to get the you accredited question. And if you have to say no, what does that mean? You just have a really yeah, crappy program. students and, and kids a bit. I think there's an even, and literally we can't go down this road, Joe, because every single one of your listeners would hang up the podcast. But there also turns out to be, the be first this time they did that menacingly that important question of transfer credits, where there's an enormous value in being accredited by one of the uh, dominant, most established regional creditors, because then a student with, let's say, an associate's degree is much more likely to be able to transfer and in the absence of that. So, um, so accreditation is a block to new entry, let's say. I want to make one thing really clear here, Joe, which is I'm not arguing for a movement of for-profit capitalists to go open new colleges. I'm not. We could talk about why. Um, I have an opinion about that. It's a little unusual, but my conclusion is, no, I'm not interested in inviting in the profit motive. What I am interested in is five new community colleges next year and 50 after that, and then five new colleges in the four-year space. And they need to be, they need to originate, they need to be approved, they need to be guided into existence carefully by these accreditors. Like if I ran an accreditor, I would be merciless with new nonprofit startups. I'd say, hey, look, you only get access to Title IV federal taxpayer money and state money if you produce high graduation rates and measurable earnings outcomes. And if you are like, like genuinely transparent with students and families about how you conduct yourselves. And so um, I'm imagining an accreditor that is interested in the formation of new colleges, but also in a new way, um, 
super focused on um, rigor and, and um, transparency and outcomes. And so there are two big things missing in the accreditation space to me on the new entry side. One is an actual pathway in. And second of all is really the know-how and the practices among accreditors for how to accredit startups, nonprofit startups in my view, and how to accredit for productive outcome-oriented colleges. So you say that you're, so are there accreditors that are interested in overseeing startups or is this a desired state part of the advocacy? Um, I think it's the latter, overwhelmingly. There are formally on the books of accreditors pathways in, but a minute ago you described the problem. It's a decade-long process. It's financially ruinous. Um, it's uncertain. Um, it's not really, it's sort of um, in every way intended to discourage entry. Um, I personally know a room full of extraordinarily dedicated, clever educators and social entrepreneurs who have ideas about new designs that they would launch, but are, and could, by the way, raise capital for among philanthropies. Um, these are designs that they could get passed in friendly state jurisdictions to get state licensure, but they look up the accreditor, accreditor mountain and they give up. So you talk about the for-profit piece a little bit because easier than starting a nonprofit uh, is starting for-profit, right? You still have the same barriers in terms of, uh, of you know, getting to the market, Title IV and so on and so on, but going nonprofit, board, so on and so on, it does create additional layers that you have to lay on. Talk about your 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 view around for-profits because that is what happened, right? You know, there was very, it was huge barriers to entry for to create a college and then for-profits came to be. They came to be and they expanded and they exploded and there were so many, fast forward, so many have closed, but that is one path. And then you see the OPM business come, come mm. out of the for-profit sector. So, you know, an evolution of that. So what happens next and why yeah. is a nonprofit startup better? Yeah, there are, I think three or four adjacent threads in that question, Joe. So first of all, I think the history of for-profit hire in America is often misunderstood or distorted. Um, yes, it arose. Yes, it was regulated, continues to be heavily regulated toward into submissions began sort of in the Obama years. Uh, for-profit colleges, if I remember correctly, never enrolled more than 10% of students in the US. Um, deeply controversial stuff. They arise mainly um, out of a particular creditor in the Midwest that took a friendly liking to them. And a kind of private equity market grew up around them where capitalists would come in and try to buy basically the coveted accreditation status that then allows them to access public money. So there's that history with it. It, I think, runs into problems. Um, it's not a one-sided story at all, but I do ultimately, my view of this is that um, the profit motive cannot actually function in higher ed. In my personal opinion, here's why, Joe. The whole thing is paid for by the government. Number one, I'll come back to that in a second. And number two, the current players are deeply, deeply vulnerable to competition. And if you add those two together, you end up with a colossal practical problem. So let me just say this one more time and I'll move on. You're like, if you look at the cash that flows into a community college or to a lot of four-year public colleges. Um, the actual cash coming in, if you trace it to its origin, is often 50, 60, 70% from the public treasuries. So it's not consumers paying for this, it's the government paying for it. And wherever the government's paying for it, when the profit motive shows up, it's very hard to imagine 
really, really care. There's an enormous sort of opportunity for plunder and excess returns. And then moreover, at least in the short run, so many of these existing colleges, this is not a critique of for-profit actors, it's a critique of the existing colleges, are so, I think, vulnerable to competition. It's very easy for me to imagine for-profit colleges actually being able to extract for a long time excessive rents and profits. Mm -hmm. So adding all, and then there's just the raw politics of this, where any reform agenda in higher in America, if you say for-profit three times, it's done. So adding all that up, put it aside. Um, so then your second question, by the way, for-profits would face the same accreditation, probably even a higher accreditation hurdle than a for a nonprofit startup, by yep. the way. But anyway, so put the for-profits aside. So now your next question, you'll become Stieg. You imagine a world of clever, functioning, durable, high-grade, stable nonprofit colleges. Is that really true? Gosh, uh, I, I think it is. Damn good questions, just for yeah, the record. That's a great question, Joe. If I had that little button with that guy, what was it? Booyah? No, wait, what was the thing? You're, yeah. It was you, amazing. Amazing. That's great, Joe. So look, this is, is a difficult question because it's a kind of, I imagine a new species of college. Um, I'm adamant that they would flourish. Um, and um, look, I think there's a very, very extensive source of startup capital for this. It's called philanthropies. Joe, if you and I went off to start a nonprofit community college, yeah, we'd lose money for three years or five years or seven years. We'd have to work out our model. We'd have to earn the right to exist within the creditor. But ultimately, they are willing payers for a really successful college. Um, so I think this is a great target for uh, philanthropy to underwrite startup capital around stuff. And I think there's enormous droves of human capital interested in this project. These are um, imagine the legions of really clever people, Joe, who sit in education nonprofits, who sit in K-12 school systems and charter schools in existing higher ed. I run into sitting administrators all the time inside of formalized higher ed, and I ask them a question they almost never would like give themselves the freedom to ask, which is, hey, if you could start from a whiteboard, what does this four-year jobs where in a public university look like, or what does this two-year college look like, but their minds light up. And I also think this is actually where employers would really, really be able to engage. I think a lot of these startup nonprofit colleges would design from the beginning with jobs outcomes involved and um, with employers involved. You get lots of clever work there. Um, so my conjecture, Joe, is there is an extraordinary number of designs um, that are suppressed, um, an enormous um, amount of human capital that's suppressed because uh, you can't get in. But if we could let that new um, set of actors and those new ideas in, we could get innovation at a whole different pace and equality. Um, and there's very little innovation in higher ed. What passes for innovation in higher ed is not actually innovation. It's just incremental change inside a closed system. Too many learners are being left behind by the current one-size-fits-all model of education. We here at EdUp and our friends at the Charles Koch Foundation see a better path forward. The Charles Koch Foundation supports innovators in education who are building and scaling new pathways to allow all learners to discover their potential. By changing the way we think about education, we can unlock opportunities for millions more Americans. To learn more about the Charles Koch Foundation support of individualized education, visit ckf.org. Incremental change inside a closed system versus innovation correct tell, tell me about how wh wh what you mean by that well okay. let me ask it back 
describe an innovative college. Mm -hmm. Right. So what comes back, I would argue, is something that maybe is five or 10% different. Sure. Not the really like, so in other words, yeah. And I think, first of all, I mean, innovation is precluded, like categorically impossible in a large majority of American institutions of higher ed. Let's start there for a minute, Joe. Why is that? Here's why. Deep fixed costs, 90 to 100% of the resources in most private and public universities are completely committed. They're buildings and staff contracts, right. number one. Number two, they, so as a result, they have no cash to invest in innovation. Anything that's new will lose money for a while. It's not an option. Right. Number three, I work at Harvard Business School. I've been to faculty meetings. These are not governance structures that are inclined towards sort of bold, innovative thinking. So these things are governed for stasis. And thirdly, they're politically deeply captured, especially the public ones, civil service protections and the whole bit. So you have, and not to mention just kind of, I think a disposition towards self-satisfaction in many cases, but you add all that stuff up. Most American institutions, I don't care if they're two or four year, public or private, are disinclined towards change and also structurally prohibited from change. Truly, they're gonna do what they're- structures are not built for- Right incubation and innovation they're built right. for you're right status quo right, or, exactly. you know it's like the innovation is a seesaw it goes five percent mm -hmm. one way or five percent the other way and you need to go a hundred percent you need to to drop you need to break the seesaw in half and not mm -hmm. to, to yeah, go no. on top of it no i mean you're you're at two-thirds of them are deeply regulated publicly funded public organizations number one so like you know you're dealing with that kind of stasis and repetition I am a great fan of certain actors inside of higher ed that are doing good work to push the boundaries. Um, I'll pick one. I'll say Western Governor, for example. You've had um, them on. They're a new college, by the way. Let the record show. Yeah, 25 years. That's Correct. That's, that's, that's baby. young. It's like little, that's young, little right? baby years. Yeah. I work at an institution that was formed around the time of like the printing press, as far as I know, Harvard, right? So Western Governor is actually a new university. And what, what happens? You get a college model that is less expensive, it's more flexible, it's more student-centric, um, it's self-paced, it's jobs-oriented. I think it's clever, I think it's good. Lots of students are flocking to them. Um, yeah, I also it's think it's sort of the first of nine innings of innovation in higher ed. I think it's the first nanosecond of a long period of innovation. So I was with a group of people the other day, Joe, that imagined starting a community college dedicated to a single degree or two single degrees, one in accounting and one in computer programming, built in deep partnership with salient, highly branded employers and designed from scratch. Just imagine what arises. You don't own a bunch of buildings. You, do, you have different faculty configurations. These are nonprofit entrepreneurs. They're interested in signing up to 70% completion rates. They're interested in signing up to outcomes where two years after graduation, anyone that comes out of that program makes more than $40,000 a year. It's unheard of. They'd be willing to hand back their creditor um, status if they don't meet those goals. And they could walk up to big employers regionally and do that deal where those employers are willing to collaborate with them and hire for them. They go, that is the kind of searching model that interests me. They would arise all over the place, I believe, uh, because um, you know, with startups, nonprofit startups, carefully regulated, I think you would get the kind of innovation that's only possible with startup teams. Speaking of innovation, I would like to say that uh, I don't believe there's any other podcast in higher education that stops mid-episode to play a game with their guests. So we're going to play a game today with you, Stieg. It's called Higher Ed Word Association. Are you ready for this? 
Yes, maybe. All right, Steve, I'm going to give you uh, for no money, by the way. No matter what your answer is, you win no money. Okay. So you might as well just just make it whatever. Um, it for is. the nonprofit people. So it's all right. Yeah, there you go. I'm going to give you a word and you're going to give me the first set of thoughts that come to your mind. These are all higher ed related words. And uh, that's how we play this game. Are you ready? Yeah. Outcomes. Non-exist, not measured. How about that? Not measured. Interesting. Okay. Number two, access. Surprisingly available. Not the main problem. Persistence, quality, outcome, and innovations are now the problems. Access was the problem 40 years ago. Ooh, that's interesting. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Degree, Steve. An oddity, but not in itself a barrier. I can imagine living with the associates and the bachelor's degree without getting into credentialing land. Tinkering with that artifice is not deep change. Value. Comes in two parts. The government is entitled to ask for basic value. I would suggest measuring basic graduation and short-term jobs outcomes, number one. Most value to parents and students is additive to that and colleges should reveal everything about themselves so parents and students could choose and optimize value in infinitely idiosyncratic private ways. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, another episode of Higher Ed Word Association with Stieg Lushley. Well done, Stieg. I, lo uh, I love it. Well done. Now you can stop sweating now. You know, I put you on the spot. Uh, let, let's talk about the access because I will tell you how many people I have interviewed that say that access is the problem in higher education. And if there was one problem, it's access and it's nothing else. And it's broadband internet and it's pathways and transfer credit. And it's, it's getting a student who doesn't have access access. You're saying that there's more access. Well, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but you are saying, or at least I heard you say that access isn't the problem. It's new models. Yeah. So I'm going to take this thing out of that one. Um, I hate to disappoint you. So look, all I mean to say is this, the percent of high school graduates and the young adults who actually go to our college is staggeringly high. The large majority is heading towards 80%. So in that simple mathematical way, access looks completely different than it looked a hundred years ago. And that's good. A large majority of young people in America go to a college of some kind. Most of us think that's good. Here's the problem. It's the thing they go to. That's the problem. It's too expensive, Joe. And it's designed with aggressive indifference to what students need. That's it. So I think the problem we should be talking about is the, the, the redesign of college models, the introduction of innovation into the college space so that we get institutions that cost less, do more, and work better for students. So when this when you talk about what's that it's counterintuitive to what students need really what students need is what low debt high quality education and a job i mean right. you distill it down right correct so let me just say the same thing one more time so what you want to avoid is saying we need more access so therefore we should herd push and subsidize more students into the prevailing design i get adamant about this America walks up to an 18-year-old coming out of high school or a young adult and says, good news and bad news. The good news is you're ready for adulthood and we're massively subsidizing what's going to happen next. State 
legislatures all over the country send troves of money on your behalf to what's going to happen next. And the federal government will lend to you almost infinitely and give you a Pell Grant in many cases. So we're going to fund the thing that's going to happen next. The bad news is the thing that we're hurting you into is a prevailing set of colleges that by and large haven't changed for 50 years. And when you go there, you have exactly a coin flip chance of finishing. And if you're a vulnerable student, a kid of from a poor K-12 background, your odds of finishing plummet. These are institutions that have changed very little on your behalf in a long time. They suffer from no pressure from new innovators of the kind that Steve Lesher and College 101 want to introduce onto them. So we, the government, are funding your future, but we're hurting you towards an institution that we're massively subsidizing and which we're releasing completely from competitive pressure and genuine accountability. So we have enormous amounts of money underwriting students heading into higher ed, but what we're not doing is putting pressure on those institutions to like so I'm interested in dramatic changes to the rate at which kids finish, uh, to the rate at which they get a reasonable job, and to the variety of college designs. And to also, here's another, I think, loss in all of this, is the degree to which higher ed has made use of extraordinary technologies that are emerging. It's called the internet, how people learn. It's true. Wait, 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 what's called what? Hey, kids, it's the internet. It's the internet. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I, so I had that one I, I'm just going to say just... outright, Joe, look, I used to work at Amazon. I have a reasonably good sense of what real technology innovation looks like. Let me just say this. It's not in higher ed. You look at most online websites. They're like 1998 era websites. Almost. And also, by the way, this is a great example of where incremental innovation gets wildly excessive applause inside of higher ed. Like some college shows up and says, look, we let students work a little bit at their own pace. And we actually use technology and intelligent software to figure out what students need occasionally. And the room goes ballistic. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm pretty sure companies figured that out 20 years ago. So in other words, it's, it's very, very early stage as innovative stuff. Anyway, all the way back to the access question, Joe. Look, we underwrite higher ed massively at the state level and via Title IV. 75, if I remember correctly, percent of high school kids go to college. So the challenge is, and I'll say one last thing on this, Joe. If you can pay, you can go to college. Remember, of 5,000 colleges in America, there are only 200 that admit less than half their applicants. You can go if you can pay. So it's sitting there. The government is subsidizing you. You're not allowed to take the subsidy to go anywhere else. So you've got to head off to higher ed. And in you go to a perilous situation. And so the overwhelming, but this is where ultimately, usually when people talk about access, what they're really talking about is quality design, persistence, um, and really innovation in the design and the practices of colleges so that they can shelter students through and get them out the other side into um, the fundamental thing they need, which is freedom, economic mobility, economic safety. You know, it's funny you bring this up because I, I've said this on a, a number of these podcasts that that, you know, higher ed is an anomaly in that it is one of the only businesses that I've ever been able to think of where you celebrate not selling your product to a group of people, right? Where you you have all these people say, hey, I want it. I'm going to apply. I want to get it. And then you go, hey, by the way, our our 
our actual interested parties were up by 26%, but we only took two. Congratulations to us not accepting the other 24% of applicants that, that, that we're up by. And everybody goes, yay, good for you. And it's like, wait a minute. what? Can you imagine Amazon, since you brought them up, going, hey, guys, we're going to celebrate today not selling our products to this group of people that said they want it. And it's like, what, how did that happen? You know, we just developed some sense of wanting to be exclusive. <clears throat> and so there's this elitism that exists. And you see schools like Western Governors, again, since you brought them up, not doing that. But but in the meat of higher ed, I know because I'm in that meat, mm -hmm. it's yeah. this balance and this conversation that continually happens of how you maintain brand, to not dilute quality oh is diluting quality taking more risk on students to be successful taking somebody that doesn't hit a gpa and giving them a chance is that diluting your quality what's wrong with a a, a product that appeals to more masses i mean so it's all these conversations that exist and it's like only in higher ed do you have that if we're in a sale in a truly sales type of business you'd go we want to sell to everyone but it doesn't exist yeah i mean there are, yeah, distortions, so there are distortions upon breakdowns upon sort of, you know, in the in the world that you describe here. And there's so many sub threads there, Joe. You know, there's the tiny, tiny relevant, a tiny, tiny corner of higher ed that is truly selective. Remember, the only these 200 colleges that are selective. They get an extraordinary amount of attention. Um, you know, the public narrative is completely confused about the idea that they somehow have a monopoly on talented humans. They don't. I, I know students in elite higher ed. Um, they're, they're just fine. Um, they're just very few of them. Um, and so the talent is everywhere. Um, so that conversation is lost. That's painful. And that's a kind of public narrative issue greatly. Um, in practice, an overwhelming majority of U.S. higher ed it's just desperate for the next paying customer so they can meet their payroll so to the next term. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's an enormous sort of self-presentation game. Um, you know, and the government is deeply, deeply culpable here um, because when the government set out 50 years ago to massively subsidize a closed sector free from accountability and competition, you know, my sixth grader could have predicted what's going to happen which is prices are gonna go up and innovation is gonna stall. Imagine if in 1950, there were 5,000 restaurants in America and the government came and sat long and said, no other restaurants can be started and we're gonna, we're gonna pay the restaurant for the burger. You're gonna get the same burger for a long time, right? So in other words, the government has a lot to do with why prices are up and innovation is completely stalled. Um, it, the, the other thing the government doesn't do in any sensible way, Joe, is to measure a college based on its student inputs. So the colleges that we should glorify in this country, it's not Harvard where I work. By the time you've admitted one out of a million applicants, and by the time you qualify them to a rich and powerful alumni network, you can literally turn the lights off. There's, it, like, it's a completely unanswered empirical question about whether highly selective colleges actually add any value as educational institutions over and above the selection bias and admissions office and the favoritism of the alumni network. Right. And my hypothesis would be none. 
The really powerful colleges in America, of course, are the colleges that take on high need students who went to K to 12 school systems that didn't educate them well, who come from backgrounds that are low income, otherwise vulnerable and marginalized. And what we ought to try to do is to actually measure the output and the quality of a college with sensitivity to the kinds of students they take on. And I guarantee you, if you did that, the lions of American higher ed are completely unheralded right now. There are probably two and four year public colleges out there that serve students um, who have been in there coming up underserved and do remarkable things to move them forward. We have no way to access the value add of colleges. So what we're left with is lionizing falsely colleges that screen massively for kids and that already have these established brands. So when kids graduate, they accelerate. Whoa. I love that. The crowd loves it. I gotta be honest. I mean, they just there's social media value in that. Is there like a there. gong you can hit or something? Is there a bell? What else you got over there? I don't, I don't have a gong. All right. A rocket taken. All right. All right. Did you hear? Like, there it is. Well done, my friend. Um, I, I could do this with you all day. I wish I had you all day. Um, I know, and there's so much to talk about. I will tell you if, if you hit um, to the audience, hit college101.org. You've got a blog in here that colleges cannot change. I love it because I think everybody should read it. And it's this, this um, self-awareness, it, what, it, what it does, it speaks to the self-awareness, like you know, the fixed costs. We are dependent on short-term revenue, paralyzed by governance. That's one that sticks out to me because I just, I feel that. I feel yeah. it makes me feel it when I go, hey, I need to do this. And it's like, oh, I gotta go. Um, who said to me in one of, that, one of the episodes that the best committee is a committee of three when two people call in sick. And I went, I went, now you're talking innovation, right? That's an innovative committee. Um, that's not the way we do it. Uh, but uh, we do ask the same two closing questions to every guest I'm gonna ask them to you now. Number one, what did we not say about College 101 and the work that you're doing? Anything that you wanna do, events that you're speaking at, hint, hint. Um, you, you know, that's that we'll, we'll oh, try okay. to get this out before you, uh, before you get oh, it's out like there. my opportunity to shamelessly plug myself. Okay. Yes, um, this is your shameless. Yeah. Opinion. Yeah. I write Go a blog. Ahead. If you want more of this, uh, I write a blog, sign up for it. And we publish a lot of, I think, interesting stuff on Twitter. Those are the two things I'll be down at ASU GSV, um, talking like this and doing a session with Paul LeBlanc, but mainly, um, in the unlikely event that some of your listeners want more of this, um, Sign up for the blog um, at College 101 or follow along on Twitter. How, how, but before I ask you the final question, here's the semi-final yeah. question. How far along are you in accomplishing your goals of getting this nonprofit accreditation unit? Not that you're going to mm -hmm. be setting it up, but you're advocating yeah. toward this promised land yeah. on a continuum. Where, where do you feel that you are? Yeah, I think um, somewhere between like a year or two away and 200 years away. Well, that's a good range. We're gonna yeah, because it's 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 a you know it's a very complex binary political regulatory problem to get um, new models of accreditation established. So I don't know. I'm I'm gonna go and hope for you that it's a year and a half. Yes. So that in your lifetime you could see it happen a hundred years from now. I'm not, I'm not sure you're gonna make it. Neither am I for that. I mean, reason. I won't live forever. Yeah. Oh, bummer. Although who All knows? Right. Maybe with some innovation we can live to 150, 160 years old. Uh, Steve. What do you see as the future of higher education? Mm. Um, I think that 
unfortunately, I think there's a chance that it remains as it is now. Closed system, heavily subsidized, free of innovation, accountability, um, and that it carries on uh, creating the distortions that it needlessly does. Um, and I think there's a, so that's a possible outcome. I think a little bit of new entry, a little bit of innovation can do a lot of good in higher ed. That's the theme of today, Joe. Uh, students do, do move. They're heavily mobile in higher ed. They shift when they see something better. So if you could get five, then 50, then 200 new clever nonprofit colleges built, I think you could start to actually create innovation. And that would also potentially spur um, real change in some of the incumbents. And so that's the positive future that I look towards um, and fight for. How likely it is to occur, I don't know. Um, but those are the two worlds. Well, you're saying the right things and hopefully in the right circles to drive this change. I encourage everybody to check out Stieg uh, Leshley. He's uh, on LinkedIn. You can find him. Search his first name. It's very unique. S-T-I-G. You'll find him right away. Follow him. Follow the work. Um, at College 101, you know, the, it's the, these types of organizations out there that give us all hope that uh, higher ed can change. You know, and uh, if it's going to, we're going to need that advocacy in all areas. And uh, my guest today, uh, he said a lot. He said it. If you missed it, go back and listen again. Oh, uh, 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 yeah. His name is Stieg Lushley, and he's CEO of College 101. Stieg, it's been an honor to host you today. Thank you, Joe. Ladies and gentlemen, you've just ed upped. The purpose of education is to help learners discover their aptitudes and interests, develop their skills, and then deploy that knowledge to benefit themselves and others. The Charles Koch Foundation, a nonprofit grant-making organization, works with leaders in education to remove barriers that stand in the way of all learners reaching their potential. They support individualized and flexible models that improve access and quality for millions of Americans. They also support apprenticeship and upskilling programs that connect learners to in-demand jobs that match their skills and interests. The foundation is looking for new partners to challenge the status quo and transform the post-secondary education system. Learn more about their partnership opportunities and apply for a grant at ckf.org. You can also find them on Twitter at, at @ccokefoundation Foundation and LinkedIn by searching Charles Koch Foundation.